Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 35, Turn and Face the Strange, where we will be looking at chapter 70 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of turning points. As you may be aware, each week on this podcast, we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, as we've said before, we're open to that changing. Pat, if you're listening, give us a call. On our unpublished phone number. Or an email. You know how to get in touch with us. There's Twitter, there's Facebook, Instagram. He's liked one of our posts. Exactly. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as The Lightning Tree and The Slow Regard of Silent Things, or B, you really just don't care about knowing the future and are kind of cool knowing how you die. Either way, spoilers ahead. Finally, a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible. And so now it is time for us to go into our 45 second recap. Phoenix, I believe it's your turn. You got 45 seconds here to recap the chapter or it's gonna be raspberries for you. I somehow don't think that I will be having any raspberries. That being said, I like one of our Twitter followers who said, well, you accidentally consumed something that tasted like raspberries this week. Doesn't that count retroactively? No, no, it does not. For the record, it was jelly donut flavored coffee. Raspberry jelly donut flavored coffee, to be precise. Which means that Will gets that whole bag of coffee. It was a mystery flavor. The mystery is... The mystery was delicious. <laughs> I'll take it. You'll get it. I get to have the gingerbread stuff. Yeah, fine by me. I like gingerbread just fine, but raspberry's my favorite. Anyway, <laughs> with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get this going. I've got a timer ready. So in three, two, one, go. Both wakes up in an unfamiliar place and feels embarrassed as haphazard security measures in the light of day. He breaks his fast in the inn's common room and whilst repairing his cloak overhears news of a tragedy in Traven. The Chandrian have crashed a wedding? So now his plan, as it is, is to run headlong into danger. And so he visits Davy to convince her to finance this foolish endeavor. 25 seconds. Not bad. Thank you. So with that out of the way, I think we're about ready to lean into our discussion here. You had some thoughts about our lens this week. Why don't you share them? I'd love to. A while back, I think it was probably while I was at DigiPen and talking about narrative in games and narrative in stories. 
Somebody brought up what is known as the Pixar storytelling formula, which is a little bit different than Campbell's rules for stories and such. So what this is, is more of a six-step kind of structure. Step one, once upon a time there was. Step two, every day. Three, one day. Four, because of that. Five, because of that. Six, because of that. Seven, until finally. Eight, and ever since then. This chapter, chapter 70, represents step seven, until finally. This story seems to be going in one direction, and there doesn't seem to be a catalyst for anything past both going through the university, and we get more of the same thing a couple of times over. We get all of these little vignettes of both going to a class, or both going to Emory, and going to the Aeolian, and these things that are very routine, and it doesn't make for a great story anymore. So while that's very real life, because my life is a series of routines of, on Sundays we record, and then for a couple of days I spend the morning yelling at the cat, and the middle of the day editing audio, and then the last half of the day futzing around on my cell phone or something. I have the same thing for breakfast, same thing for lunch. We have set times that things happen, and it just kind of keeps trucking. And that's kind of where the story has been. Keeps trucking until one day. Yeah, the Chandran have served as this sort of narrative turning point in a number of places before. They did this when Quoth's routine was hanging out with his family and Ben in the wagons. The Chandran came and upended all of that. Then we got his time in Tarbian, where he spends his time mostly just scraping by to survive until he hears Scarpy's story about Lanray and the birth of the Chandrian, which is what then gets him to wake back up and transition to the next phase of his life, where he is trying to enter the university. Then he's stumbled into something of an equilibrium here in the university, where his days are mostly going to classes, getting into trouble, getting out of trouble, hanging out at the Aeolian, looking for Denna. That's the general rhythm that he settled into. And now the Chandrian have returned into his life after being mostly just something that's been in the background there for a bit. And suddenly we have Quoth going out into the world once more, now as something more than just a lazy college student. So... It has been since episode 16, nearly 20 episodes, that Quoth arrived at the university. Now, when I say that many episodes, know that it's been roughly 300 pages of this 700-page book this past half a year at the university. Something needed to change. We are still almost 200 pages from the end of the book. <laughs> So, yay? Yeah, there's definitely the sense that Kvothe's time as just a struggling college student was going to have to change. And this is how it happens. The Chandrian have this way of upending any routine, no matter how well established it might be. I think we can get directly into our discussion of the chapter. 
The chapter's kind of short, but it's really important. On top of that, part of the reason why we didn't go into the next chapter is because that chapter is not short, but also takes place, for the most part, outside of Emre. So it feels like it's separate and should be its own thing. To catch you up, Kvothe has been attacked, and in his drunken stupor, has managed to find his way to an inn that he wouldn't normally go to, someplace along with Docs and Emre. He takes security measures in shoving his dresser across the door and blocking the window that is too small for a grown man to get through because he's drunk and injured and paranoid. Yeah, these seem more like security blanket measures than actual countermeasures to any sort of threat. When he wakes up, he's kind of embarrassed about this. He knows that he could have done better and that this is haphazard at best. It's not useful. So I'm actually going to counter something here. He's already taken numerous countermeasures to hide his location. And anyone who knew his location would find a way through most any given security measure that he would have come up with. That said, he's also been operating on low sleep and adrenaline for a long time and he's needed to rest. And if this is what he needed to be able to get a good night's sleep, that served a purpose in and of itself. Fair enough. <laughs> Even if it didn't really make him any safer, if it made him feel safer to the point where he could actually sleep and then have the wherewithal to recognize that maybe it didn't do anything. Hell, it actually did something. <laughs> There's a sentence here that says, After cleaning myself up, I felt mostly human. After eating, he says, It's amazing how much easier it is to think productively when your belly is full. These are such true things to say. I know that if I go a day without showering, it just feels gross. I know in these pandemic times, especially at the beginning when everyone's like, I get to stay home, I get to stay in my pajamas, I get to do all of these things that are like the dream, right? The I get to not have to go into work. I can just work in my lounge pants and not have to wear a bra if you're one of the people that would normally choose to do so or that society would insist upon you doing so. I don't have to brush my hair or put on makeup or any of these things to make myself look professional for the outside world. Hell, you changed your hair. You dyed your hair green <laughs> while you were at home. And it was green long enough where it grew out enough where now we've cut it <laughs> and it's all gone. So there are these temptations to just kind of let yourself slob out, but it feels so much better after you take your shower, after you get a real meal, wearing real clothes. I'm not saying wearing uncomfortable clothes, definitely wearing comfortable clothes, but maybe changing out of your pajamas once in a while or having a set of pajamas that's your day pajamas. Yeah, there's something to be said for establishing a routine of your own. So oftentimes in the before times, you know, these transitions from work to home were mediated by a commute of varying length. You're always going to have to get dressed. So you're always going to have to put on something. 
Now, granted, I worked in an office where comfortable clothing was to be expected, and it wasn't uncommon to see people in various forms of athleisure or what have you. So you'd have that, and then you'd come home, another transition period. And so once you were home, you, know, you didn't have to think about work because you'd had that spin down time while you're sitting in the car or on the bike or whatever. Once everyone transitioned to remote work and working from home and the like, that distinction kind of fell away. And it got tricky to really effectively transition out of work versus home. And so that could be a real problem. So yes, having those defined transitions makes a big difference. And let's also be clear, remembering to eat is a really important thing. Yes. So when I stopped having my nine to five, or rather six to three <laughs> job and transitioned to having my time off my little mini vacation and then I was going to be doing my own projects. When I don't have a set routine, my mental health goes to crap. My anxiety was going absolutely nuts. I felt really weird being, quote, unproductive. I didn't like not having a set time that I ate or a set time that I worked or a set time that I did certain things. I thrive on routine and I got rid of the routine because I thought that it would make me feel better and it didn't. It definitely didn't. And the thing that has actually kept me the most well, mentally well, physically well, is the podcast because I have set myself up with a very specific routine. I also shower every day. <laughs> I eat at the same time every morning and I eat at the same time in the middle of the day. I eat the same things every day because I am boring and basic as hell. But having you also on a set routine where, yes, you're in the same house, but you're in a different space helps because that means that I get a set break when you come down for lunch and I get a set stop time when you are done with your work. There's that. And also the point that I was specifically getting at, having food helps. Like if you've ever gone a long time without eating and you find yourself starting to spin a little bit, it's amazing what having something to eat can do to just help get you out of that rut and help you more clearly see things. I don't know if you've ever been in this position where you're just so stubborn and saying, but I need to finish this thing. And then you're just like, I don't need to eat. I need to finish this thing. I have been in those positions where I've been working on an art project and I look up and it's three hours past the time I should have eaten and I have a headache and I'm like, oh, well, that was a mistake. It's not about how much. It's just making sure that you've got enough energy to actually keep going. So anyway, after having a good meal, Quoth's well-tuned eavesdropper's ears. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Drink every time you hear him say that. I don't really want to be sloshed. <laughs> anyway, so he hears some rumors of blue flame engulfing the town of Traben. Blue flame? <gasps> Why, I believe we've heard of this before. You want to tell that story? So, this is also Patrick Rothfuss adjacent. A few years back, I think this was the last time we went to PAX West. PAX Prime. It will always and always and yeah. always be PAX Prime. This is my tangent and my hill to die on, but go ahead. This is our last PAX together, and 
we went to see the Acquisitions Incorporated live D&D show with Pat Rothfuss and Mike and Jerry from Penny Arcade, and then Scott Kurtz from PvP, and Chris Perkins as the Dungeon Master. So throughout it, they had a little bit of audience participation where whenever someone talked about green flames, the entire audience would yell out, Green Flames! <laughs> and so now every single time that we read this book, we come across blue flames. Blue flames! And that happens. <laughs> Our mild apologies for that being an ongoing thing as we talk more about the Chandrian. Indeed. So, sounds like they crashed a wedding as if they were Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson in a Renaissance medieval setting. Which, I mean, I do find it very amusing to picture Cinder as played by <laughs> Owen Wilson. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hallie Axe is played by Vince Vaughn, who's so muddy you don't even know it. I'm never getting you out of this particular rut, am I? Do you really want to? I mean, we could just talk about Wedding Crashers instead of Chapter, if you want. Well, we'll talk about it through the lens of Wedding Crashers. How about that? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. In all seriousness, we have suddenly a new impetus for Quoth to actually move forward. Quoth's goals instantly clarify. For a while, it seems like he'd kind of forgotten why he wanted to get back into the archives. It seems like he hasn't really had much goal beyond just advancing in the university and finishing his studies. He'd kind of let that become his primary motivator, which is all well and good for day to day, but it doesn't make for a great story. And it's easy to get caught in a rut that way. This little bit of gossip changes things for him. And he realizes that he's not going to be able to just keep following his routine to get what he really wants, what's really driving him. There are... A few hints that he was already leaning towards leaving, but he says he couldn't leave. He had too much invested here. At the end of that paragraph, he says, My precious few friends, Denna. Denna's not his friend. <laughs> he doesn't think of Denna as his friend. Ah. He thinks of Denna as an acquisition to be placed on a shelf. He certainly doesn't treat her like a friend. No. Anyway, I think we've hammered that particular point in a few times, and we also might be continuing to do that as uh, he reaches Traven. Anyway, he's thinking about his routine. He's thinking about the fact that he's got to go to the Medica, and if he doesn't, if he's late, if he's absent, he's going to wind up with a higher tuition because he's pissed off the masters, and he really ought not to piss off the masters that like him. Yet, he's not gonna go. And that's kind of the trick about these calls to adventure, these turning points. They require your protagonist to upend their lives, to get outside of the comfort zone and to take that major risk. And here we see him shifting gears. He hears a story about blue flame and everyone at a wedding dying, roughly 30 people. 
And that's probably a lot of people in terms of this society, especially a small town. So he botches his attempt to get more information from the people who have some information, the gossip mongers, if you will. And he just kind of sits back down defeated and he makes a very impulsive plan. He is going to find out how far away Traben is, and then he is going to buy a horse and run. <laughs> yep. To be fair, there's something to this. We've sometimes been in situations where an opportunity arises and it's fairly far away. I, I feel like that's how our move out here to Oregon went at certain times. We suddenly saw this opportunity and then once it became a material thing, we just started looking at what we had available to us to make it happen. And then we did. And obviously there are things that we learned along the way, mistakes that we made that we'd probably do a little bit differently, but given what we knew at the time, we did as best we could. <laughs> and this is what happens when you're looking for those sorts of opportunities. And at this point, that's where Kvothe is. So naturally, Quoth recognizes that one of his greatest assets and also biggest liabilities is his ability to gain funding through Davy. And so he pays a visit to his friendly Galet. As a kind of truncated explanation of what happened in between finding out that he has to go to Traven because his brain just said, go find the Chandrian, and oh sure, I don't have any money, is... Well, what little precious money I do have is now being spent on things like food and then information and then how the hell do I get to Traven? And there's a couple of little fun bits in here that I think are nice little callbacks to remembering things like, oh yeah, he had parents. My father always claimed that a league wasn't really a unit of measurement at all. It was just a way for farmers to attach numbers to their rough guesses. I like that because... It feels real. And you have to imagine that in a sort of pre-digital age where you don't have exact measurements mapped out on every single milepost, etc., there's a lot of reckoning going on that may or may not be accurate. He guesses it's about 70 miles. I could make it today if I had a good horse. What a bastard to be doing that to a poor horse. Anyway, we find out a little bit later that he plans to get there before noon, which means like probably maybe, maybe, maybe four hours, maybe. And that includes buying the horse. Ah, I'm not very happy with Quoth at this point, but you go on a freeway and it's still a little over an hour in a car. Ah, why do that to the poor animal? Anyway, so we get into Davy's home behind the rendering plant. Trust me, rendering plants smell disgusting. He finds out that the story of him getting mugged has spread at least as far as Davy. And while this would have been information that would have been useful maybe, you know, an hour ago before he heard this story that is spurning him to go towards danger, now it is a little less important to him. It's interesting how perspective can shift like that where something that feels so tied to your identity or so tied to important at one point can be upended just like a snap of the fingers 
and it's completely different. I see a fair number of podcasters every once in a while post something that's like, my hard drive broke and I lost today's episode or something to that effect. It feels so, so devastating in the moment. We lost the raw audio for episodes one through nine and we completely lost episode nine. One through eight had already been uploaded and great, but I was in the middle of editing episode nine and it felt terrible. And instead of just re-recording and continuing on, it felt like it was so important that that one hour of audio or whatever it was that we had recorded, it felt like that was such a large amount of importance. And now it doesn't. We ended up finding ways forward and I think ultimately ended up in a better place. So Quoth naturally figures maybe he can use Davy to put the word out that messing with him is a bad idea. And then he goes through a series of grotesque threats that would befall anyone who messes with him, including killing their dog, which Davy's got standards. Unlike the director of John Wick. It's one thing to threaten grievous bodily harm to someone, but their dog? And there's something to that, because the dog is innocent. Well, at this point, Quoth shows off his wound. Davy is aghast that it is so disgusting looking, and that the shirt that Quoth used to bind it up is so gross and filthy. I mean... The kid works in the Medica. Go to your shift today. Steal a bunch of medical supplies. Don't get infections. Is that the way that Kvothe thinks? No. No, I'm going to ride 70 miles on a horse with an open festered wound. So thank goodness for Davy. Because she chides him and sews him up. And then says, yeah, sure, I'll spread some rumors. Anything for a friend. And to be fair, people were already thinking twice about going after him, given that he permanently blinded one of his attackers. But now they know who he is. So then, finally, after that little bit of a preamble is out of the way, Quoth is able to ask for his real business, which is 20 talents to buy a horse. And Davy almost laughs him out of her home. I mean, this is a guy who's been struggling to pay a fairly modest sum by comparison. Four talents. And he's been thinking of that as onerous. Now he's asking for 20. So during this exchange, we learned that Quoth actually does take his promises to Kilvin seriously and refuses to give Davy the lamp. The first good decision he has made. Yeah, he's been learning a little bit from Kilvin. I suspect part of that is also that Kilvin generally treats him like an equal. So what Davy ultimately acquiesces to is a promise that if Foth finds his way into the archives by means that are not just, Hey, Lauren, I was actually patient. You'll let me back in? But rather, I'm going to go in looking for a sneaky, sneaky way into a building that may or may not involve the underthing. And if I find my way in, I will let you come in. And then what? No one's going to notice the two of them? And at the end of the chapter, Quoth plays the same little trick on Davy that Davy played on him when they first met. Threatening to not 
make the deal simply because there were adjustments made to the bargaining. That's always a valid strategy. And as we both know, because we have read this book a few times, it works. But we are left on the cliffhanger of whether or not Davy is going to bother financing Foth's foolish endeavor to borrow a book title. Wouldn't go so far as to call it a beautifully foolish endeavor, but it certainly is foolish. And an endeavor. Shout out to Hank Green. <laughs> Indeed. And with that, I believe we are ready to talk about our Phronemos of the Week. It is your turn. It is indeed. Now, we don't have a whole lot in the way of speaking characters outside, really, of Quoth, who of course never counts, and Davy. So I think it's Davy. <laughs> There's a couple things that I notice here. So first of all, as I mentioned earlier, she has standards. She will not harm a dog. There's a reason why the kick the dog trope is a thing. You know someone is a bad person when they harm an innocent animal. It's a quick shorthand to say that this is not a good person and she will not let Quoth become that person. Especially if it's a cute animal. Absolutely. It is one thing to kick a mangy dog that's out on the streets. It is a different thing to kick a puppy. And even then, kicking that mangy dog out on the streets is a pretty terrible thing to do. Because that poor thing's hungry. It is a good pupper's. Soapbox over. <laughs> Second of all, she recognizes that this is a tremendously risky thing. She runs the numbers and knows that Quoth can't possibly pay her back even just the principle on this. Runs the numbers. You said runs the numbers? She knows this already. She is aware that he can't pay back the loans that he already has. Yeah, she knows what he can do. Like, even when he's paid her back before, it has always been by the skin of his teeth at the last minute because of some windfall that comes his way. So she tells him so. In the meantime, she also stitches Quoth up without even really asking for anything in return for this. She does this because this is something he needs. And she just does so. Even as she's gently chiding him, you notice that she kind of just is doing that almost as a bit of patter to make through. And when Quoth tells her his side of his mugging incident, you know, he obviously has this incredibly dark reading about it all. And she provides an alternate one, which he considers, and he ultimately rejects, but she doesn't force the issue. She just brings that up as something for him to think about. And while she ultimately recognizes just how useful Quoth's little bullseye lantern might be, when he says that he has given his word not to give it up, she doesn't really press beyond that. No, she presses it once. But once he says that he's given his word, that actually matters to her because one of the things that her business is built upon is that her word is good and that her client's word is good. And if they're willing to keep their word on something like this, that means that they're more trustworthy. I think that she can do better business with him. Finally, she also recognizes this value proposition in finding an entrance to the archives. And she also recognizes that Quoth is smart enough and persistent enough that this isn't a matter of if, it is when he finds his way in. I noticed that he also says, when I find a way into the archives. Which is funny that, again, 
He's persistent and stubborn enough to do this, but he is not persistent and stubborn enough to do what is actually being asked of him, which is be patient. But Lauren isn't going to let her into the archives no matter what she does, so from her perspective, she recognizes in Quoth his impatience is something that she can pretty much bank on. <laughs> I will agree to that. I'll definitely agree to that. I think she has a very good read on who Quoth is as a person, and she is a very astute judge of character. And whether we agree with the characters she's judging, she knows who Quoth is and will be able to work with that. So, that's why Davy is our Phronemos of the Week. There's some real practical wisdom there. I like it. And with that, I believe it's time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin with an interesting fact of the week. I believe it's your turn. It is. And for those of you keeping track, this is the third one that I wanted to tell a few weeks ago. But you found my first one so interesting that I didn't have to. So now, finally, I get to tell this one. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that eating half a donut was, quote, depressing. To which I told you, well, but I'm the person that usually goes and cuts a little bit of a donut away to have just a bite or two. And you're like, but just eat the whole stupid donut. So I may also wind up being, you know, that guy. And throughout the day, I will cut small bits from several different donuts of different flavors. I'm also likely to enjoy small portions of several different foods during a meal rather than just one normal portion of one type of food. I like a lot of different flavor profiles when I actually have a plate of food. So this likely has to do with a phenomenon called sensory-specific satiety. For most people, and some other animals, there is documented evidence of a lack of satisfaction generated by the consumption of a certain type of food if eaten over and over or in large enough quantities, at least in one sitting. And then the renewal of appetite when a new type or flavor of food is introduced. This is why there's always room for dessert. So what I'm doing by taking half a donut is ensuring that my entire experience with that donut is pleasurable. And that by the time that I would experience the satiety, there is no more donut left for me to mindlessly eat or eat out of obligation. So, while I find that maddening, it is interesting. <laughs> and this is why I'm glad that you don't work in an office anymore. <laughs> you didn't work in the office with me. It wouldn't have bothered you. I wouldn't have told you. But the funny thing is, like, I have the same thing for breakfast and I have the same thing for lunch every dang day except I did recently change what my breakfast is back to what it used to be when I worked in an office so it had been grits every day and I wasn't tired of them I just kind of felt like I should probably have something that was a little more substantive than corn and cheese so instead I went back to my hard-boiled egg and yogurt the difference between working in an office and having my hard-boiled egg and a yogurt and working from home and eating my breakfast at home is that we have two persistent little yogurt fiends in the forms of our podcasts. Yes, Leela and Sokka, Sokka in particular, are absolutely in love with Greek yogurt. 
like to the point where I got my yogurt out. I didn't open up the cup. I put it on the table and went back into the kitchen to get my coffee. And I come around the corner and Sokka has taken my yogurt cup and put it on the floor and is batting it around trying to get into it. He knows what he likes and what he wants. <laughs> I turn my back for like a second after I've already finished my yogurt cup and his head is in the yogurt cup. Like, he had yogurt on his face for the entire day after that. It's adorable and maddening. He's been known to try to bite my spoon. I always get adorable pictures out of this, though, so. True. And you guys get some amusing anecdotes on Twitter. Yes. Anyway. Anyway, I'll give that one an interesting, even as I don't enjoy always having to get part of a donut. I'm a weirdo. Yeah, well, it also means that I don't overeat out of obligation. That's fair. And with that, I believe we have come to our seven words. I have the books this week, and uh, there were actually a lot of these. <laughs> Here's what I've got. So we've got, while my hands worked, my thoughts wandered. We've got, you'll listen to any piece of gossip. Also got, got some lovely red jennies this morning. I don't discuss business on the landing. They weren't trying to rob me. I've got news travels quickly among us unsavory types. This will make them think three times. I've got I thought you weren't supposed to bleed. I've got the engravings add a lot to it. I've got that's a little grim, don't you think? You're the only hawk for me, Davy. And then a small favor to help a friend. I've got I need money for a fast horse. And you're not good for that much money. The one I chose, though, was I don't discuss business on the landing, which I think there's some real wisdom on that. Any business that you do on your front doorstep isn't something that maybe you should be doing, just because there isn't time to properly discuss and think and actually negotiate. And this is why I don't buy Girl Scout cookies from door to door. Because you're a monster. I'll buy them in the grocery store with the kids out front, but I'm not going to do it when they come to my doorstep because, well, also I don't open the door because that's where the cats can get out. But <laughs> if it's someone you wouldn't let into your home, you shouldn't be doing business with them on the doorstep. So those are my seven words. It's interesting to me that you chose Girl Scouts as the ones that you wouldn't let into your home. If you're going to say anything about Girl Scouts, just remember that I was a Girl Scout. Well, I know you. I don't know the little kids in our neighborhood. That's fair. As people who are nearly 40 and don't have children of our own, it would be a little creepy if we did. Exactly. I mean, when I was in my 20s, there was a little 10-year-old next door that walked into my house multiple times without telling her parents. And I was just like, hi, little one. Out, 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 out. Coming over to your parents. Knock, knock, knock. Your kid was in my house. I just want you to know that your kid was in my house. I did not invite her into my house. I found her in my house. I swear this isn't creepy. I swear it's not on purpose. Have your child back, please. Definitely. I mean, I would not want to wind up with one of the kids next door to be in the house. Me neither. Nope. And so with that, it's time for seven words from life. What do you have? I think it's appropriate for the day. 
Thanks for sharing your laughter with me. Thank you very much. I do appreciate you sharing your laughter with me. I think that's the defining thing in our relationship, really. We like to make each other laugh. I love that you just try to make sure that any time that you annoy me, you ultimately end up making me laugh. Because you know that there's like, I could just profusely apologize and annoy her more. Or I could go over the top and then eventually she'll be laughing and she can't be mad at me if she's laughing. It's true. It is a conflict avoidance strategy and also a conflict resolution strategy. <laughs> it tends to help lighten the mood and help us refocus on the things that we actually care about, namely one another's happiness. I never want to see you angry at me, and I never want to do things that cause you to be angry. I also love to see you smile and laugh, and I know that I am not entitled to said things, so I like to do things that elicit that. Those moments of laughter are what remind us of what makes our relationship work, and you know, what makes our life worth living. And as you have said multiple times, if only one of us wins in a situation, in an argument, in a discussion, in a whatever, in a negotiation, then neither one of us really wins. And I know that with us, if both of us wind up laughing, we've both won. I've yet to lose an argument. Ultimately speaking, yes, neither have I. <laughs> exactly. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you, audience, for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss Chapter 71 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of bargaining. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And a huge thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring together. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you'd like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. You can also find us on the socials, at waystonepod on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. And so with that, I believe we are time. What? What? And so with that, I believe we are time. <laughs> <laughs>